Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor of the Bulwark, and I'm joined by some of our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Damon Linker of the Week is off, but sitting in for him, we are delighted to welcome Will Salatin, who is also our new colleague at The Bulwark. Our special guest this week is Adam White, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in the U.S. Constitution and the administrative state. Welcome, one and all. Well, it is a very, very sad, sad day. We have seen, for the first time, a major war break out on European soil overnight. The shelling began last night and uh, has continued today. It's a very fluid situation. And as we are recording this on Thursday, we just heard from President Biden, who outlined a series of sanctions and talked about the unity of the Western alliance. And let's just hear a clip of what he had to say. I just spoke with the G7 leaders this morning, and we're in full and total agreement. We will limit Russia's ability to do business in dollars, euros, pounds, and yen. Bill Galston, this is very different from the incursion into Georgia, into even Crimea. It's different from any war that we have seen in our lifetimes. So I wonder if you would sketch out what this means for for history. I mean, you, you had a brilliant column about that this week, so please sketch out how you see this. It's the end of the end of the Cold War. <laughs> it's the end of the end of history. Mm. It's the end of our holiday from history that has lasted some decades now. It is a reminder that the use of force is not something that history renders obsolete. It's an ever-present possibility in the hands of tyrants and also, I would hope, in the hands of people who resist tyranny for themselves and for others. This is the beginning, I believe, and I hope, of a new era in U.S. foreign and defense policy. It reminds me a little bit of the events of 1947 that led up to the announcement of the Truman Doctrine. I think this is as big a turning point. And the question is whether we are as a country and President Biden is, as a president, prepared to seize this moment and reorient ourselves toward the sorts of policies at home and abroad that can sustain our allies and democracies that now face a major threat on two different fronts, the West and the East, Europe and the Indo-Pacific, from autocrats who have now joined in an axis of autocracy. This is a really big deal. Yeah. Uh, let, let me follow up a little bit with you, though, just about the uh, speech that Biden just gave. I was disappointed in two things. I mean, I, I thought in, in general it was good, maybe not as good as the one he gave last week, but pretty good. There were two things that I thought were missing. One is that he failed to mention that there are protests breaking out all over Russia, anti-war protests, which is a highly significant 
fact, especially considering that people who protest in Russia are really taking a huge risk. And there have been at least a thousand arrests already, which is, I think, a huge, huge deal. And he should stress that, you know, our quarrel is not with the Russian people, but with their government, that sort of thing. Second point is that he was at pains to say that one of his biggest concerns is trying to prevent the gas prices from rising. Don't you think he would have been better off saying, look, you know, I know this has also caused some pain for American consumers, but this is the price we pay for freedom or, or something along those lines, rather than pretending that he can somehow prevent this hardship? Well, I agree with the letter and the spirit of both of your remarks, Mona. And the spirit of the second is especially important. Because if we're going to rise to the moment, and let me be really blunt about this, we're going to have to abandon the idea that the defense budget can be a piggy bank for domestic concerns. Uh, we are going to need a significantly larger defense budget, in my opinion, both to have adequate land and air forces and prepositioned equipment in Europe and to build a navy that is adequate to the challenges that we're going to be faced in the Asia-Pacific region over the next two decades. This is, freedom for sure is not going to be free. We've had 20 years of wars that served us very poorly, during which the American people turned against war for reasons that I can understand, and also in many cases came to prefer domestic benefits to defense expenditures, that is going to have to change. And it's going to be a real grind unless and until the president of the United States prepares the American people for this change. Will Salatin, I noted that a few people sort of who were left of center this week were giving grudging credit to Mitt Romney's comment from 2012 that Russia was our chief political geostrategic foe. He was roundly uh, dragged for that at the time. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that uh, some people have been more clear-eyed about the threat from Russia than others. And I do wonder whether people on the left have begun to sort of pivot their focus. You know, the President Obama was one of the people who arguably handled Putin very badly and kept saying that he was going to pivot to Asia and kept saying it wasn't important and that it was just a regional power and that we needed to do nation building at home, et cetera, et cetera. What do you make of that as somebody who I think was much more well-disposed toward Obama than I was? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, in Obama's defense, Things in foreign policy, things in the world generally, are often true at a time, not at another time, right? And there has been this lull in uh, the threat from Russia. It, it, there, you know, there was the Boris Yeltsin era. There was um, the era of Gorbachev leading to Yeltsin. So there was a time when Russia was less of a threat, and then it became more so. And you have to adjust with the times. In Mitt Romney's defense. That standoff with Obama over the importance of Russia in our foreign policy was in 2012. It's only two years later that Putin goes into Crimea. So Romney was ahead of his time. And Mm -hmm. if we had listened to Romney, he was on time. Now, so Obama was the one who was out of date at that point. And I think this is a lesson 
for a lot of people like me who grew up between the wars, if I can call it that. I mean, I hope we're not going into a world war. That's what we're trying to avoid here. But those of us who are after World War II, those of us who weren't around for Vietnam or were too young for Vietnam, we're going back into a time like the one we had before. And we've been very lucky to be between, you know, in, in a time after the Soviet Union and then Russia was a threat, but it has reasserted itself. And we're just going to have to reacquaint ourselves with a fundamental reality of the world, which is bad guys. Bad guys, there are a lot of bad guys. There are a lot of predators out there. They, in a vacuum, they will take power. They will hurt people. And we can't just focus on domestic concerns. As important as those are, we do have to arm ourselves. We do have to prepare to stand up militarily or economically to bad guys. Adam White, one of the things that uh, our previous podcast guests, Francis Fukuyama and others have stressed is the importance of democratic governance, that democratic governance is great not only because it leads to prosperity and freedom at home, but because democratic regimes are almost never aggressors internationally. Uh, They have to answer to their own people. And one of the things that makes someone like Putin so dangerous is that he doesn't have to answer to his own people. And I wonder whether maybe this will be a clarifying moment about the stakes in the world that we do have to be on the side of the spread of democracy, which has gotten a bad odor since since uh, the the failed interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and obviously it can be taken to extremes. This idea, but that the concept that democracy is important to promote around the world, I think we'll see new life. Do you agree? Well, I hope so. Uh, America throughout the Cold War played an important role in not just its military buildup and its economic support for foreign countries, but also the message that it sent abroad uh, through Voice of America, through Radio Free Europe, and just through the messages it sent through day-to-day diplomacy. Today, I suppose the message that America is sending to the world is primarily the messages they see on our cable news channels and in our pop culture. Well, hopefully, the United States will start spreading a better message. But more to that, though, I'd say, in, in connection with your earlier point about democracy in general, Here at home, I think this may be, I hope it will be a clarifying moment for the kind of government that we need our own democracy to produce. And I don't mean that in partisan terms. I mean, across all administrations, the need for a steadier, more serious, and more effective administration at home, precisely so that when crisis strikes, like a moment like this, we already have lined up the things that we need lined up, a stable economy stable monetary policy, well-staffed government, and effective government. Ultimately, events that we can't control will drive an administration as much as its own planning will. That's the story of every administration. That's why it's incumbent on every administration to build itself up in preparation for the unknown. And I think it's safe to say that recent administrations of both left and right uh, have failed to live up to that, and, and we're reaping the sort of the sorry cost of that now. Linda, we are hearing from the right a series of things, some of it outright Putin cheerleading, and some of it the absurd argument that if Trump were in power, this would never have happened, that Putin was afraid of Trump 
because Trump was so unpredictable. So let me just play you a clip from Tucker Carlson about, well, it wasn't specifically about whether um, Putin was afraid of Trump, but rather that we shouldn't hate Vladimir Putin. What is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? These are fair questions, and the answer to all of them is no. Vladimir Putin didn't do any of that. So there you are, Linda. And Laura Ingram actually went even further, if you can even go further than that, by mocking the Ukrainian president for imploring Putin not to attack his country. She called this a really pathetic display. This is, and we'll get to Trump in a minute, but this is outright cheerleading for a dictator and for a war criminal. Yeah, I mean, I can remember during uh, my youth uh, when Hanoi Jane Fonda went over and broadcast on Hanoi Radio uh, when we were at war there. I mean, I think these guys are very close to being in that territory. This is execrable. This is odious. And these personalities are acting in a way that seems to me is almost as if they want to make Russia great again, not make America great again, but make Russia great again. Because what they're doing is playing right into the Putin narrative. You know, I I joked uh, with you offline earlier and and Bill as well, that I watch Fox News so that you guys don't have to. Uh, And I did watch Fox News last night and I watched their coverage and it was appalling Uh, It was almost as if the whole point in the primetime coverage was to bash President Biden, as if President Biden was the enemy of the American people, not Vladimir Putin. And I think that's really, really dangerous. But I will, I, I do want to piggyback on something that Bill introduced, and that is, you know, what we need to be doing in terms of defense spending. The fact is, We are not spending enough money on defense as we are heading into this new era. I think the last budget had about a 2% real increase, and that really doesn't even, it isn't a real increase. That doesn't even account for the effects of inflation. And I think one of the things that we are going to have to see is the United States spending more on defense, but also pressuring our allies, and particularly our NATO allies, to also beef up their defense spending. And I would think that given there is now a land war on the European continent, and we have seen Vladimir Putin send tanks as well as missiles and and other explosive devices uh, into Ukraine, um, that they're going to be aware that they need to beef up defenses. But the other thing that Bill didn't mention that I think requires some action on the part of the Biden administration is our energy policy. It is extremely important that we begin to produce more energy and to export more energy. 
Their countries in Europe are dependent on Russian energy. Germany, as we know, they just cut off Nord Stream 2, but they get a significant portion of uh, their energy needs from Russia. And if Russia is not going to sell it to them, and, and we should not want Russia to be selling to them, then somebody else has to step in. Uh, obviously, we can, you know, hope and try and pressure the Saudis and, and others in the Middle East to sell more of their oil uh, to Europe. But the United States is capable of producing natural gas, liquefied natural gas. And we are also our third biggest source of oil into the United States has also been Russia. So we need to cut off our reliance on Russian oil, and we need to meet those needs ourselves. And that is going to not sit well with the environmentalists and the climate folks in the Biden administration. And so I think, you know, they need to think about this and they need to figure out how to convince uh, the American people that we must uh, be more energy independent and become uh, more of an exporter of energy uh, than we are right now. Bill Galston, let's pursue that a little bit, because without energy exports, Russia ceases to be an international threat. I mean, it's that basic. It's pretty much their main source of revenue. And of course, they are very, very awash in natural gas and oil. Arguably, Angela Merkel's worst decision was closing down her country's nuclear program and proceeding with the uh, Nord Stream 2, but which is now on hold and possibly dead, hopefully dead. But I'd like to hear what you think will be the response of the Democratic Party, which, by the way, has been pretty good about, you know, far better than many Republicans on the principle of upholding democracy and responding to aggression. They've been good. But will they be willing to take the much more difficult step of saying, you know what, we really have to reevaluate our energy policies. We have to maybe invest in nuclear in a serious way in order to disable, uh, first of all, it'd be good for the climate, but also to hamper bad actors. This is an issue, I believe, where the president is going to have to take the lead. This is not a reorientation that's going to bubble up from the grassroots. I think the administration has been working pretty successfully so far to round up alternative sources of energy, particularly natural gas, for the Europeans. And a number of Middle Eastern producers have indicated that they are uh, going to turn some ships around uh, and provide increased natural gas supplies to European markets. It's also the case that energy markets are fungible. So to the extent that the Russians are not sending as much to Europe, they'll be able to send more to China. And that will free up some of the energy now flowing to China uh, to go to Europe. So with successful diplomacy, coupled with the way markets operate, I think Europe is going to be able to get through this in the near term. In the longer term, we're going to have to persuade Europe to accelerate the creation of the kinds of facilities that can receive liquid natural gas from ships that go across the Atlantic to deliver it to them and then to deliver LNG to households and needy 
business customers. Can any of this happen without a re-examination of energy policy here at home? No, I don't think so. I don't think the administration is going to change its mind about oil. But I do think that they will be able to make some headway on natural gas and with nuclear. They're going to have to persuade some people that we're in a new ball game now. And this is an issue not just of the environment, but also of national security and also of America's global leadership and the defense of democracy. And I don't know when this process of reorientation is going to start. I would hope that the president would begin it with his State of the Union address. But even if he begins it there, it's going to take a long time to persuade the American people that we're in a new era that is going to require us to act in new ways, both with regard to the budget, but also on energy policy. This is going to be a long slog. And to use an appropriate metaphor, this is a super tanker, American policy on energy, and turning it around is going to take some time. Elliot Cohn, former dean of the uh, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a former guest on this podcast, wrote a piece for The Atlantic this week. And he said, uh, I'm quoting, only one thing, in fact, can cause Russia to rethink and even abandon its program of conquest, coffins, unquote. And then he said that, uh, you know, the sanctions will not deter and they will not cause Putin to change course. But we can inflict the kind of pain that will, by the way, I have heard, you have to discount a lot of what you hear in the opening hours of any war because there's so much disinformation and misinformation and innocent mistakes. But I'm sure you heard, as I did, that one of the things that Putin sent to the front in addition to mobile hospitals was mobile crematoria, presumably to hide the number of Russian casualties. Uh, I don't know how he thinks he's going to hide that from the families, but God knows. In any event, what Elliot Cohn suggests is that we arm Ukraine and uh, arm the insurgency that he believes will erupt against the Russians there. This, of course, raises the ante and raises the risks for war. What, what do you think? Well, yeah. Uh, the, you know, one of the interesting phrases that President Biden used in his address was, I can't remember how it began. He was speaking about, you know, it looks like at the beginning when you go into a country, things are working out well. But history has shown, he said, that this gives way to, and the phrase was, grinding occupations. Now, of course, there's a lot of irony in that phrase, right? That's us in Iraq. That's us in Afghanistan in a lot of ways. Um, but Just that's as true. It was Russians in Afghanistan before us, but yes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I, he could have been referring to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And this is one reason why I just probably disagree with you, Mona, and some others about our occupation of Afghanistan. You know, you can go in and, and punish somebody for attacking you, which is not the case here in Ukraine, right? This is unprovoked on Russia's part. But over time, even a justified invasion, if you stay there, becomes a grinding occupation. Uh, Biden's correct. So that will happen in Ukraine. Uh, the estimates that I have seen, are the, you know, the Russians began with, you know, 150,000 to 200,000 troops in position to be part of this operation, not even necessarily to go in, just to be part of it. So some fraction of that goes in. But the estimates for what they would actually need to occupy Ukraine, you know, which is the size of Texas and with an enormous population, are 800,000 minimum troops, up to three to four million, right? They have nowhere near that. They absolutely cannot sustain an occupation. They seem to believe they can go in. 
put in a puppet government and get out. I don't believe they're going to get away with that. And I don't believe that their puppet government will be able to survive without essentially an occupation. So absolutely, we should be supporting an insurgency. That's what was done to us by the Russians when uh, when we were in Afghanistan. And we'll, we will obviously do that in return. And so it may look at the beginning like Putin can put up a mission accomplished banner the way we did in, in Iraq. But over the long term, I don't believe he can sustain this. And we should do everything we can to make sure he doesn't. Dwight Eisenhower said, war is mankind's most tragic and stupid folly. To seek or advise its deliberate provocation is a black crime against all men. And that certainly applies to Putin, who is a monster. So as the five of us are having this conversation about what should happen, what is likely to happen, you know, you almost think, well, you know, we have a normal country again, but we don't. One party is still led by a guy who is not just not anti-Putin, but an outright pro-Putin. So let's hear what the former president and likely nominee of the Republican Party in 2024 had to say about, just by the way, as a bunch of right-wing pundits were saying how tough Trump had been on Putin, Trump comes out with this. I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well. Very, very well. By the way, this never would have happened with us. Had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. But here's a guy that says, you know, uh, I'm going to declare a big portion of Ukraine independent. He used the word independent. And we're going to go out and we're going to go in and we're going to help keep peace. You got to say that's pretty savvy. And you know what the response was from Biden? There was no response. They didn't have one for that. Now it's very sad. So as we've seen in the past, Trump gets extremely excited when one of his dictators uses force against innocent people, and he begins to boast about how close he is to that person and what good friends they are. And he did that last night in Mar-a-Lago, even as uh, missiles were falling on uh, men, women, and children huddled in subway stations. Linda? You wanted to respond. Yes. Well, you know, I couldn't help when I heard Trump talking about uh, borders and how smart it was, you know, for Russia to go in and take back that territory that had once been part of Russia, a part of the Soviet Union, at least. And I thought, you know, then he mentioned the southern border in the United States. Well, I wonder what he would think if Mexico decided to take back Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and most of California. The United States did not get that territory, most of it, until 1848. And it had been part of first Spain and then Mexico's uh, provenance uh, prior to that. You know, this, this idea. And we took it by force. And we took it by force. In, by the way, a war <laughs> that President uh, Ulysses S. Grant 
called an immoral war. So did Lincoln. And so did, yeah, right. And so did Lincoln. So yeah, no, it is so apparent when you listen to Donald Trump that what he respects is strong men. And he sees Putin as a strong man. And that's what he wants to be here in the United States. Donald Trump behaved when he was in office and would behave even more so if he were returned to office as a strong man. He is not a small D Democrat. He has no use for democracy. He never has. And how you can have uh, conservatives like Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham was on Fox News this morning talking right after apparently he had talked to former President Trump in Mar-a-Lago about what was going on in Ukraine. And Lindsey Graham then took that as his opportunity to hit President Biden, although he did end up the interview basically saying, well, we have only one president at a time. Of course, we have to support the president. But many of the Republicans are behaving very, very badly here. And this is extremely dangerous. We have not been in as perilous a point as we are right now, I don't believe, since the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, we have a nuclear-armed Russia invading a democratic country and also saber-rattling with his nuclear weapons and saying that if the United States and the West imposes sanctions, that they're going to get a response the likes of which they have never seen, and uh, reminding us that the Soviet uh, the Soviet Union, they are acting like the Soviet Union, that Russia uh, has a huge nuclear arsenal. Adam, one of the things that people could fairly conclude, having watched the United States over the last six years, is that we have devolved into a kind of crazy, childlike unseriousness in every way, and that we had this buffoonish clown as president, except that he was not such a buffoon that he wasn't dangerous. And so at the moment, you know, when, as Linda says, this is a a truly dangerous time, Uh, we don't know what Putin is capable of beyond what we've already seen, which is bad enough. But that speech that he gave on Monday night was frankly, slightly unhinged. And he seems to be very convinced of it. And there's word that because of COVID, he has been even more isolated and stewing in his own juices over the last two years. And and yet I'm more worried even about us because I'm worried that there are so many leading figures in our society who are completely unserious and even pro-authoritarian at this point, including the former national security advisor put out a disgusting statement sort of condemning Ukraine and uh, and praising Putin. Well, that's right. I mean, one can never you know, step into the head of somebody like Putin and try to understand why at this moment he's trying what he's trying. But it seems to me among the things that surely weigh into his calculus are one, high energy prices and thus empowerment of Russia's fossil fuels-based economy. But then two, um, at the same time as high energy prices, is a low national unity and resolve among Americans and, and within the, the Western coalition. And so I, I can't remember who it was that said that weakness is provocative, but I'd say the weakness of American unity and American institutions is a provocation all its own. And, and we're seeing this now, of course, in Ukraine. It's hard not to imagine that this in and of itself isn't making the risks of a crisis in Taiwan actually more likely, just as surely 
what happened in Afghanistan made this week's events more likely. So I don't know how we get out of this at the current moment. It's hard for us to all say, well, it's time to be unified. That said, sometimes a moment of crisis does help to focus the national mind. Um, and we've seen this through American history from the revolution on to World War II and so on, where external or internal crises actually help to unify the nation. But it remains to be seen whether Americans or whether the Western coalition in general actually sees this as a real crisis, right? It's, it's certainly a news event today, and we'll see how long it goes. But I'm sad to say, surely it's not that hard to imagine the fall of Ukraine and, and this Russian invasion just take on a sense of normalcy a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. It's hard to imagine. I guess one last thing is maybe we will feel a crisis if China uses this as an inspiration for an invasion of Taiwan, thus putting into real jeopardy American supply chains, the semiconductors that we rely on and all the other technology that we rely on. That surely will be a crisis, uh, but by then it'll surely be too late. Well, that was well said. I just want to add that while there are many things to criticize President Biden about regarding how he's handled this, I mean, there are certain things that I think were big mistakes, like when he mentioned that he wouldn't necessarily react to a minor incursion. That was that was terrible. He fixed it later, but still bad. On the other hand, this narrative that's out there on the right, and it's even being promoted by the uh, Republicans in the House of Representatives who are accusing Biden of weakness and saying that his weakness provoked this attack. Uh, well, first of all, Putin began assembling these troops on Ukraine's border back in April, okay, which was long before the debacle in Afghanistan. So it cannot really be laid at the feet of Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, as some people want to suggest. And the other part of this that really just is incoherent is the fact that under Trump's leadership, he was as weak as could possibly be vis-a-vis Putin himself. I mean, nobody was more servile toward Putin than Donald Trump. So the notion that Biden is the weak one is laughable. All right. Well, this will be continued, and we will now turn to another topic. In addition to our crisis internationally, we also have the Supreme Court to think about because it is the end of February and President Biden had announced that he would name his appointee for the seat being vacated by Justice Breyer by the end of this month. And um, it is thought, or at least in the press, they're saying he has interviewed three nominees, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Leandra Kruger, and J. Michelle Childs. So I'm going to start with you, Will Salatin. As between those three, I think Leandra Kruger is pretty great. She's the one from the California Supreme Court, but she's probably the third in the rankings. What do you think? Oh, I have no idea which one he's going to pick. I mean, (laughs) what's kind of interesting to me about this pick, there are many things that are interesting about it, but one of them is that this comes after Donald Trump was able to stack the court on the conservative side. So the stakes are a lot lower, perversely. I mean, there are Republicans who are talking about how they could support one of these, you know, one or more of these, particularly Michelle Childs. And part of it is they know they already have the court for the next 30 years, right? They've got a majority. Well, you never know. That's true. That's true. (laughs) But, you know, if this were the fifth vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, for example, that they would be fighting a lot harder. I think this is almost a gimme. Plus, it's, of course, Stephen Breyer's seat. So it's a 
Democrats reclaiming one of their own seats. So I think the stakes are lower, but it also means that the Democrats are not going to feel particularly that they need to choose somebody who a few Republican senators would support, because I think they'll get whoever they want out of this group. And the question is, do they want to take the most liberal of them? And I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm very interested in the fact that there are now enough black women in the pipeline, that is people who are, you know, circuit court judges, who are state Supreme Court judges, that, you know, you now have a lot to choose from and you get a variety of views. And I think this is great for America. I think it is great to see the diversity of viewpoints because there are a lot of people, if you're outside an ethnic group, you can start to think they're a monolith and they're not. Black people are not a monolith. Black women are not a monolith. And to see the variety of different judicial philosophies, approaches, I think that is healthy for the country. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, I think it was unfortunate that some people suggested that somehow a black female nominee would be uh, lesser, even though I don't think it's good to announce that you're going to pick somebody on that basis. But still, uh, you're right. It is uh, encouraging about our country that there are so many great possibilities here. Linda, do you have a dog in this fight? Do you? Is there somebody that you're rooting for? Well, I, like you, like the judge from California, uh, Ms. Kruger. Uh, I think she is somebody who had a history of working with people sort of on on both sides of the ideological uh, divide. Leander Kruger was on the Supreme Court and she has, um, you know, she has- Is on the Supreme Court now. Is on the Supreme Court, sorry, in California. And she has, I think, got some support among folks on the Hill. uh, My understanding is that- there are people on uh, the Republican side uh, of the aisle who would be probably more pleased with her than they might with some of the others. But, you know, I'd like to pick up on something Will said, and that is that it it does say something about America, that we now have uh, very well-qualified Black women uh, who can compete on their own merits to be a justice on the Supreme Court. Like you, I didn't like that President Biden sort of restricted his choices by demographics. In some ways, I think it would have been even more wonderful if if he had not made that restriction, but simply had thrown some of these names out there uh, along with uh, others of, of different demographic backgrounds and then ended up picking the Black woman. I think that would have sat better with me. But I think this is not going to be the kind of appointment that's going to cause a huge fight because the court is very unbalanced right now. There are six conservatives. And even when Chief Justice uh, Roberts sometimes sides with the minority in decisions, I mean, that would still be, uh, it's not going to change the balance at all. It's still going to be 6-3 or 5-4 on some contentious issues. And I think that makes it a little bit easier to get something through the process uh, in the Senate. So Adam White, you were one of the distinguished members of the uh, President's Commission on uh, the Supreme Court. I saw that the commission issued a preliminary report. Has it been finalized? Has, it, has the final one been issued yet or no? Uh, yes, we, we issued the final version in December. Oh, okay. And so one of the things that the uh, commission said, apparently there was a lot of disagreement 
But one of the things that the commission said that I'd love to hear your views about was that they suggested that we shift power to resolve major social, political, and cultural issues from the court to the political branches. And uh, these would include things like supermajority voting requirements and a congressional override of certain judicial decisions. But I want you to talk about that and also contrast it with the piece that ran just a couple of weeks ago from former Judge Michael Ludwig suggesting that election disputes specifically, where there's now some ambiguity about how these things should be settled, and that's one of the reasons that we need to reform the Electoral Count Act, he said that those should be resolved by the courts. So what do you make of that uh, distinction? Well, let's start with Ludig. I I saw the op-ed too, and this is an issue I've been working on with a conservative coalition that would like to see some reforms. I didn't take Judge Ludig to mean that we should want a lot of disputes over elections to go to the Supreme Court, but rather he was saying that many of these disputes are ultimately questions of law, the application of state election laws especially, and there needs to be a path for steady and swift judicial review, especially of any kind of federal questions of law. And what we saw in the last election, I mean, we saw no shortage of problems, obviously, um, with people ginning up phony attacks on the election results. But sometimes you do have genuine disputes over election procedures, election, even sometimes election outcomes. And we can't afford to have weeks and weeks of meandering litigation. There needs to be a much more efficient process for judicial review, even including sometimes cases that will get up to the Supreme Court. And so I, I think that's certainly true. Of course, I... To, to your first point, I agree. We don't want the Supreme Court to be in charge of everything. And if anything, the Supreme Court has too much of a footprint in American political life. Justice Scalia, about 30 years ago, wrote very eloquently in one of his most famous dissenting opinions. Uh, he wrote to his fellow colleagues on the court that the main reason why the fights over Supreme Court confirmations have gotten so ugly in the Senate is because of the Supreme Court's footprint on policy ranging from abortion to to any number of of other issues. So I certainly think that's the case. Now, as far as our report goes, the commission's report, and let me tell you who doesn't love a 36-person group project, (laughs) we didn't actually offer any recommendations. We were very clear on that. We were just sort of analyzing some of the proposals that were out there. So we never had any ultimate recommendations. I'd have to say, for me personally, I'd be very wary of anything like a legislative veto over Supreme Court decisions, because at the end of the day, What we need is clear allocation of legal disputes from policy or political disputes. Legal disputes, of course, they belong in the Supreme Court when there's a real case that brings it to the Supreme Court. Um, And I don't know that I would want to put, say, Congress in as the final Supreme Court of genuine legal questions when it comes to reviewing laws that are already on the books. But I think the Supreme Court needs to do much more to restrain itself from reaching out for issues that really aren't legal issues and trying to turn them into constitutional issues. And hopefully we live in in an era when the Supreme Court is reducing that footprint, not increasing it. Do you think whoever President Biden nominates, do you think there will be a big struggle over it or not? I don't think so, partly because the stakes are lower this time. This isn't a swing vote. Also, and I'll put my partisan hat on, but frankly, Republicans have not gone scorched earth on attacks on nominees the way we saw with Thomas, Bork, and Kavanaugh and others. Of course, there was the fight over Garland. That was a fight over Republicans not saying anything right? rather rather than <laughs> on saying too much. So I, for a variety of reasons, I don't think we'll see attacks. I don't think Senator McConnell would necessarily want to see Republicans making this into too much of a fight, creating an excuse for Senate Democrats to change procedures. 
ultimately, I think what we're going to see the most in this confirmation process, I think, is going to be a much broader debate about the Supreme Court itself. Every confirmation fight becomes a battle over the legal issue of the day, whether it's the global war on terror, Second Amendment, or campaign finance. This time around, the court itself seems to be the political issue. I think there's a lot of people that are trying to raise what I think are, are ill-founded questions about the court's legitimacy and so on. And I, my guess is Republican senators will spend as much time as anything focused, of course, on abortion and, of course, on affirmative action, which is coming up in the fall, but also asking the nominee and thus Democrats in general for their views on the legitimacy of the court itself. And that might well be what the confirmation process becomes a discussion of. Bill Galston, there have been two long pieces recently, one in the New Yorker and then another in the New York Times, um, exploring uh, Clarence Thomas's uh, wife's role. Ginny Thomas is a political activist in her own right and um, even had a role in the protests at the Capitol on January 6th, though after the violence, she did issue a statement distancing herself. But um, but she's been involved in, in many things that are, frankly, um, a little bit uh, out there. And um, but you know, I, this is this raises a very delicate matter about whether Clarence Thomas should be held accountable for his wife's views and whether he's re- obliged to recuse himself just because of what she may say or do. What do you think these articles had anything of note or anything that should be? I mean, some people have said that we should impeach Clarence Thomas. What, what do you make of this? <laughs> the area of recusal is one that is governed much more by judgment than by rules, regulation, or law. Given what's happening to public opinion about the Supreme Court, namely that more and more Americans are coming to see it as a nine-person legislature, which is distinguished quantitatively but not qualitatively from the rest of the political process, anything that Supreme Court justices can do consistent with their oath of office to distinguish the courts on political grounds from legislatures and other purely partisan activities, or very partisan activities, I should say, would be very useful. Ginny Thomas is among the highest profile conservative activists in the country. And she is involved in innumerable conservative causes, some of which in one way, shape, or form come before the Supreme Court. I think that Clarence Thomas, of his own volition, should be more careful in dealing with those questions than he has been up to now. The idea of impeaching him is ridiculous. It's not clear to me that he has violated any explicit canon of judicial procedure. But I do think that he should behave responsibly vis-a-vis not only his own participation in the court, but vis-a-vis the court itself as an institution. Adam, can I just hear you on this topic? Do you think that all of the justices have an obligation to keep a more sort of Olympian distance from politics? This is a really hard question, and it's one that I've thought a lot about. The Justice Thomas situation is is difficult, I'd say, because who am I to say that a Supreme Court justice's wife shouldn't pursue her own calling and career simply because of her husband's appointment to the court? 
at the same time, Justice Thomas, like all the justices, do need to maintain the public's confidence and public legitimacy. I do think a lot of attacks on Justice Thomas in particular, we've seen from the moment his name was first brought up as a Supreme Court justice, and he's endured this now for three decades. And broadly, I'd say people's declining confidence in the court as an institution, it surely says something about the court, but also surely says something about the people who are being polled, all Americans. So I'm not quite sure. I think in general, it's good when justices are talking with the public. In fact, the program I run at George Mason, the Seaboyd and Gray Center, we co-hosted the Heritage Foundation event that was at issue in the New York Times uh, account. And I'm glad we did host Justice Thomas then. We'll host other justices, I hope. It's good when they talk to the public. I think it's important, though, for the justices to first talk to broad audiences and not just their own political support. Second, I think it's important for us to see how the justices interact with each other on the bench. And I think it's also important for we, the public, to really take seriously their judicial opinions and not just sort of lob political grenades around with attacks on the court. By the way, back in the good old days, I do remember attending an event hosted by the Federalist Society that was a discussion slash debate between Antonin Scalia and uh, Stephen Breyer. And everything was incredibly polite and full of good cheer and humor and interesting differences. And I think it was about how much should international law affect our domestic law. And uh, it was fascinating. And that is the way things ought to be. Stephen Breyer, to his credit, you know, appearing before an audience that mostly wouldn't have been on his side. So anyway, thank you all. And we will now turn to our final topic. Highlight and lowlight of the week. Bill Galston, we'll start with you. Thanks, Mona. Well, this is a no-brainer. Donald Trump's statement, which we discussed earlier in this podcast, it is, I think, without serious competition, the worst thing I have ever heard a president or former president say. And I'm going to cross a line that I rarely cross. If the core of fascism is the suspension of morality and the worship of power, then that was a fascist statement. And it isn't even a close call. 100% agree. Will Salatin. Well, not to pile on Bill here, but the uh, Donald Trump's statement in his fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago, as the Russians are in Ukraine, they're in eastern Ukraine, they're preparing to go into the rest of Ukraine. This was just hours before the main invasion, the follow-up invasion. He used a phrase that really struck me. He referred to Putin, obviously, as a genius and savvy and all of that, as though Putin were sort of a member of his country club who had just pulled off a really good deal. And here was the deal. Trump called Ukraine a great piece of land. That's a quote. He described it as like a real estate transaction. And he described Putin as only paying like $2 in sanctions was Trump's term for it, as though it was a smart financial move for Putin. And he just spoke admiringly of this, this invasion that's killing hundreds of people, according to the latest reports. It's almost mind boggling to think that this guy was in charge of a superpower, ours, the United States, and that he might be so again. Agreed. Linda Chavez. Well, I was going to point as my low light of the week, Tucker Carlson's rant, which you played part of, but since I think we've exhausted that topic, I'm going to uh, give a recommendation for an article that actually has appeared just today uh, by Robert Kagan. 
entitled What We Can Expect After Putin's Conquest of Ukraine. And he talked about the strategic and geopolitical consequences. But more importantly, he talked about what this means for the United States and our role as a power that as Russia is expanding, if U.S. power begins to collapse, that's going to mean a very, very fraught future in Europe. And if it was combined with Chinese gains in East Asia and in the Western Pacific, he suggested it was going to herald the beginning of an era of global disorder and conflict. And it was a very sobering piece. It appeared in today's online version of the Washington Post. That is Thursday, so it should be uh, available uh, when our podcast goes live. And I thought it was very well done, as most things by Robert Kagan are. Thank you for that. Okay, Adam White. Well, it's hard to compete with all those suggestions. So I'll take it in a different direction and suggest that in addition to everything we've already discussed, uh, the low light for me is the fact that the extended dispute between Major League Baseball's owners and players is probably going to drag on through spring training. It's already delaying uh, the start of spring training and will probably delay the start of the regular season. And with everything else that's going on in the world, couldn't we at least have baseball on time? You know what? We have to get you together with last week's guest, George Will, who mentioned the same thing. (laughs) All right. I want to praise a piece by our very own William Galston that appeared with his colleague Elaine Kmark on the website of the Progressive Policy Institute. It is called The New Politics of Evasion, How Ignoring Swing Voters Could Reopen the Door for Donald Trump and Threaten American Democracy. And it is a most timely warning to his party. Not the first time that Bill has delivered such a warning. He did so 33 years ago. It's a good effect, actually, for the party. But in any event, it's a lesson that they badly need to hear. Listeners to this podcast are familiar with some of the arguments that he makes, but it's a very, very compelling argument that they amass about why the Democratic Party, because of the nature of things, cannot rely on the country becoming majority minority and trending toward the Democrats or the country becoming more progressive or any of that, and that victory will depend upon winning close elections that are decided by swing voters in swing states. And I highly recommend this piece. And again, it's available on the website of the Progressive Policy Institute. And with that, I want to thank our guest, Adam White, and I want to thank Will Salatin for sitting in this week and thank all of our listeners. I also want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri Mose. And uh, we will return next week as every week. <laughs>